Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 241. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I'm doing a film noir kind of film and a western. So the first one is from 1956 and it is Humphrey Bogart's last feature film, The Harder They Fall, also starring Rod Steiger and Jan Sterling. Then we're moving ahead five years or so for How the West Was Won, an enormous picturesque movie of the opening of the West, starring a whole bunch of people I'll tell you about a little bit later. But let me get the contact details out of the way, and then we'll have a bit of fun talking about the brutality of boxing and the widescreen colonisation of a country by white people. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a fortnightly podcast of movie appreciation. There's only one rule, and that is the movies have to be more than 20 years old, and I have to like them. I'm going to be looking at the history of the films, the social context in which the films were made, and relate that to the way movies are now. Feedback is very important, so you can leave reviews on iTunes. You can also go to feedbackpaleo, P-A-L-E-O, at gmail.com and drop an email or a voicemail by mp3. Or you can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. Now, please be aware that this podcast may contain adult language. So if you don't want to have to explain it to your kids, don't listen to it when the kids are around. Unless you have incredibly hip children. Okay, so how have you all been? Um, it's been quiet here. It's still fairly cool and it's been wet and windy, which is never a good thing if you want to get out and do things. Haven't done too much in the last week or so, but I have hopes for the future. Doing a bit of a road trip later in the week, uh, into the weekend, into South Australia, which is the state over to our west with a couple of friends. So we're going to get a bit of fun out of that. And we're just kind of saving some money towards the enormously wonderful trip to Japan we're doing in April next year. We plan things really far ahead. And I should actually do a season of Japanese cinema before we go, just for the fun of it. Uh, unfortunately, I did find out that there is a problem with the Japanese trip. We're going there three days too late to go to in Kawasaki the Steel Phallus Festival, which is a spring festival they have in Japan, celebrating dicks for some reason. They raise a lot of money for AIDS charities, by the way, by doing this. The um, the shrine where it happens has been doing these ceremonies since 1969. That's that ceremony they have in Japan with the enormous pink dick at it. Um, three days too late, we're turning up there. But you can't have everything. Um, it's a bit like... Um, the trip to Japan is a, is a weird thing for us because it's a bit like we want to have a taste of everything, but our stomachs won't hold everything we want to chew on. So we're going to have to be a bit selective about what we do. We're doing some fun stuff and uh, some kind of cultural stuff there. And I'm going to be doing some YouTube videos. And I'm also going to live podcast from Japan a couple of times if I can manage it. Probably when I get sick of walking around Shibuya and uh, Shinjuku and uh, Osaka, Totombori, all those places that we're going to go. Uh, I can sit quietly in a very nice hotel room. We have two very nice hotel rooms, one in Osaka and one in Tokyo and Shinjuku. So I will have a little bit of downtime where I can kind of podcast, which will be really fun for me to internationally podcast. I'm really looking forward to that. 
So it's always good to have plans for the future. So um, the Australia has settled down from the political ructions I mentioned in the last Martian Drive-In podcast. Things have calmed down a bit and everybody's fairly certain that, fingers crossed, we have a change of government sometime early next year and that sanity can prevail. Uh, there's a, a lot of talk about misogyny in the ruling coalition uh, of our government and rightly so if... Um, misogyny is stopping women of quality getting to the top levels of politics then that definitely needs to be addressed and based on all evidence that's happening i like women in politics because they bring a different viewpoint to things and also it shares the blame between the genders if something goes wrong but anyway i have actually been seeing movies surprisingly enough since last we spoke not too many actually there's only really two to talk about and to be brutally honest with you, which I always am, neither of them is very good. Yeah, there's one more thing before I do that. And see how I foreshadowed there by saying neither of the movies is very good. And you're hanging on to see what those movies are. And now I'm going to digress just to piss you off. It's my 12th wedding anniversary. Sally and I have been married for 12 years today. We got married down the corner, the park on the corner of the street where we live. The reception was held in this very house. And 12 years is a long time, but it's been a good time. Yeah, there have been problems and all sorts of changes in both of our lives in the 12 years, but we've hung tough and we're closer than we've ever been. And I love Sally a lot. She supports the podcast by leaving me the fuck alone when I need to record it, which, as podcasters know, is one of the great virtues of a partner when they can give you the space for the things you're passionate about. It's a gift and she gives that to me in abundance. So I just thought I'd throw that in there. Anyway, the movies that I've watched, two of them. One I saw at the cinema, and I spoke about on ABC Local Radio in the Northern Territory with Michaela Simpson. It was The Happy Time Murders. Now, here's the first thing I will tell you about The Happy Time Murders. Don't bother. All the good bits are in the trailer. Now... I thought that was something of the past. Remember back in the day when the good bits were always crammed into the trailer of a movie and you kind of got disappointed? I thought Hollywood had moved past that, but apparently they haven't. And The Happy Dime Murders, Murder starring Melissa McCarthy is not worth your time. It's kind of a conceit where they live in a world where puppets are real human beings, in a sense, and they kind of try to combine a police procedural almost and a detective story with Meet the Feebles. Now, Meet the Feebles back in the late 1980s was transgressive as fuck. There was nudity, there was outrageousness, there was political incorrectness from the first frame to the last. In fact, it's one of Peter Jackson's more enjoyable movies in a lot of ways. But The Happy Time Murders, written and directed by the son of Jim Henson, Brian Henson, is horrible it's careful about uh muppets even though it's kind of it's not allowed to use the word muppets because somebody else has the right to it the puppets are, are clearly muppets there's um the weird thing is that i was kind of comparing it to who framed roger rabbit where the fact that tunes are real has a real impact on the plot of the movie that doesn't happen in this one the puppets are a side issue if you take out the puppets from this movie, it's a pretty ordinary cop buddy cop movie. 
with all of the plot beats of a buddy cop movie, and it's boring as fuck because we know what those beats are. There's one scene where one of the um, puppets does a Sharon Stone basic instinct move, and even that's kind of, you know, meh, yeah, a puppet pussy, big deal. It's badly thought out. This thing was in production, pre-production for 10 years, and they still couldn't get the script right. The script needed to integrate this change to the world into the plot a lot more than it did, and it also needed to have the courage to make it really transgressive and not just kind of like puppets offering sex and blowjobs and all sorts of things like that. They really needed to kind of take it to 11 to make it at all worthwhile. It's just not that. It's arguably the worst movie I've seen this year, and I've seen some pretty bad movies this year. If you're interested in seeing it, wait till it turns up on a streaming service that you get for 10 bucks a month or something like that. But don't bother shelling out anything more than that because it's just not worth it. The other thing which I found on Amazon Prime, which is getting a lot of sleazy movies from the 1980s, fortunately, is Death Spa, a sleazy movie set in a health um, spa in the 1980s, which is haunted by the ghost of the spa owner's wife who works through a computer system. It's really bad. It's got that kind of... The prosthetic works and the gore effects are all very 1980s with a lot of gelatinous stuff in them. Um, There's a lot of gratuitous nudity, which is always a big help with a sleazy 1980s horror film. Uh, It's not a good movie, and it ends on a very nihilistic note, but it was entertaining, and it kept me going a lot more than the Happy Time Murders, where I was starting to nod off, even though I had a good night's sleep the night before. There were bits of the Happy Time Murders that were... A total sedative. But Death Spa, I wanted to see because I'd heard a bit about it and I know that other podcasts have covered it. And, yeah, it's um, it's a bit of fun. And as long as you just don't take the concept seriously, you can kind of roll with it in that kind of 1980s VHS-era joy of bad cinema that we all kind of share. And, um, yeah, it's uh, it's a very good print, by the way. I believe there was a Blu-ray release of this film not too long ago. And the print that I got on Amazon Prime was sharp as hell. And I kind of like that. I'm going to dip into more 1980s sleaze movies from Amazon because they do seem to be um, kind of meeting that market. And it costs, like I said, 5 or $6 Australian a month for that service. And I think I'm getting pretty good value from it, as indeed I am from Netflix. They're the two streaming services I have at the moment, apart from the free ones we get, which are um, ABC iView, which is a streaming service for um, the national broadcaster, the ABC, with whom I have a relationship, and SBS On Demand, which is our ethnic broadcaster, which does multicultural broadcasting, and is showing a whole bunch of fine feature films which they churn through and they get the rights to, but it's really kind of giving good value on that uh, particular platform. Unfortunately, both of those are geoblocked, so unless you've got a VPN, ABC iView and SBS On Demand aren't able to be accessed. But uh, if you do have a VPN, you may well be able to enjoy those. So they're the two movies that I've watched in the last week. Um, I've done a little bit of kind of TV binging as well with some anime, watch, uh, watching some more episodes of Yu-Gi-Oh. I've also got some new anime to watch, which I'm going to enjoy. There's, uh, I'm going to 
try to rewatch One Punch Man, the first season of that. I've got Ranma Half, which is a classic um, 1980s anime. I've got some more episodes of Uritsai Yatsura to watch. And the funny thing is, you're going to like this. Sally is getting into anime for the first time because she started reading manga. She started reading Death Note on manga and Tokyo Ghoul. And now she's watching the anime versions of those and becoming an anime freak, as she's often said to me, in her 40s. So good on Sal for that. Um, I'm kind of glad she's getting into it. We're also doing the Miyazaki stuff, so we've got a few more of those to watch. Kiki's Delivery Service and also Hal's Moving Castle are next up on the list. And uh, we're going to have a little bit of fun with that. So time for a break, and then I'll talk about the first of the two movies. I'll do them chronologically, as I do most of the time. And that one will be The Harder They Fall, directed by Mark Robson and starring Humphrey Bogart, Rod Steiger, and Jan Sterling. That, of course, was Careful, Careful by Eileen Rogers, which has got nothing to do with either of the movies I'm going to talk about today. So let's instead talk about The Harder They Fall, 1956 American drama film directed by uh, Mark Robson and written by Bud Schulberg. The script was actually by Philip Jordan, but it was based on a novel by Bud Schulberg. Now, I've been researching Bud Schulberg because 
There are a couple of things that he's I like. First off, he wrote A Face in the Crowd with Andy Griffith, which is one of the kind of er paleo cinema movies, one of the great movies of the 1950s, in my humble opinion, and I'm just doing something here. Uh, and he also wrote something which should have been made into a movie but never was, What Makes Sammy Run, which is was adapted into um, a musical and was done as a television play but was never actually done as a cinema release, which is a bit of a shame. And also Bud Schulberg was a member of John Ford's documentary unit during World War II for the Office of Strategic Services. It was really interesting because Bud Schulberg, in order to help them identify Nazis who had escaped, Bud Schulberg was the person who actually arrested Lenny Riefenstahl and got her to go through her films and help him identify high-ranking Nazis so that they could be apprehended for the Nuremberg trials. So, really interesting guy. Lived to 2009. He was 95 years old when he died. Really fine writer who also had a really nice ear for sharp dialogue. And The Heart of They Fall is full of sharp dialogue. Now, the story's pretty simple. Humphrey Bogart plays a sports writer whose newspaper disintegrates and he's looking for a job. So he ends up against his better judgment, working as a public relations guy for a shady fight promoter called Nick Benko, played by Rod Steiger. Bogart's character is called Eddie Willis. His wife's played by Jan Sterling, which is a bit of a shame because Jan Sterling doesn't get a hell of a lot to do in this movie because it's very much about the guys and about the boxing industry. But she was in so many cool movies doing so much really, really good work in things like Ace in the Hole playing Lorraine Minoza, the wife of Leo Minoza who's down the hole in Ace in the Hole. She was in High and the Mighty as well. She was in Mystery Street in 1950. Really um, fine actor who didn't get the roles that she probably deserved. She was working as late as 1988, so she did have a continuing career. But I really think that uh, she was a little kind of undervalued by Hollywood, which is a little bit of a shame. Now, there are any number of other good supporting actors in this movie, just to get back to the film for a sec. By the way, Bud Schulberg also wrote On the Waterfront, which is something that I really should have noticed. So to get back to the movie, um, Eddie's kind of reluctant to work for Benko, so he does get himself um, a good deal on it. And as we see underneath the title credits, the person he is supposed to be promoting is an Argentinian boxer called Toro Moreno, played by Mike Lane, who has come up from Argentina. He's been brought up by one of Benko's men. And he and his manager, played by Ricardo Montalban's brother, Carlos, come up to America and they're being promoted to be the next big thing in boxing, basically, because Toro is six and a half foot tall, 290 pounds. He's built like a brick shithouse, and he was a strong man in a circus. What they don't find out until they get him into a ring in a gym is that he can't fight worth shit. He can't throw a decent punch. He's muscle-bound and too tight. He also can't take a punch. He's got a glass jaw. But Benko's paid a lot of money to get him up there, and he knows that he can make money out of Toro for however long his career lasts. Eddie is then asked to boost him up. Um, they decide to boost him on the West Coast because the West Coast, as he says, likes freak shows. 
And so he goes over to Los Angeles and builds up Toro. They get him a whole bunch of fights with a bunch of boxers who are either past it or are willing to throw the fight for an amount of money. And so they build up Toro as the next big thing to try to get him a shot at the title, which inevitably they do do. Now, just before he has the um, fight for the title, he goes up against a kind of slightly older boxer called Gus Dundee, played by an actor called Pat Kaminsky. Dundee is, has got a kind of headache. He's um, not feeling very well. And what they don't know is that he has a pinpoint cerebral hemorrhage. So even the kind of mild punches that he gets from Toro lead to him dying and being killed. Now, the problem is that the fight that Gus Dundee had immediately before the fight with Toro was with the world champion Buddy Brennan, played by former world champion Max Bear, who's the father of Max Bear Jr., who played Jethro in the Beverly Hillbillies, just to, so you know. Uh, the problem is that uh, Buddy Brennan wants it known that he's the person who killed Dundee, and the fact that everybody thinks that Toro is the person who killed Dundee in the ring pisses him off. So even though he's asked to kind of throw the fight and is offered an immense amount of money to do so, Buddy Brennan decides he's not going to, and he's going to beat the fuck out of Toro. Now, I've got a couple of scenes that I'm going to play for you on this one. The first one is Eddie trying to give a reality check to Toro with the assistance of um, his fight trainer, George, played by former boxer Jersey Joe Walcott in Toro's hotel room just before the title fight. You really believe you killed Dundee, don't you? With his hand, I killed him. Yeah, you really believe that? Well, let me tell you something. You couldn't kill anybody unless you had a gun. What you mean? Just what I said. You can't punch. You're a fake. You never hurt anyone. I punched, they go boom, 26 men. Every one of them a fix or a pushover. I do not believe you. I don't care what you believe. It's the truth. You're not even a 10th rate fighter. You're what they call a bum. I know bum. I trade hard and I fight hard. I do not know my own strength. You leave all those lies I write about you. Nick Benko paid me to make up those fairy tales so people would think you couldn't be hurt. No one can hurt Del Toro. No way. Any saloon fighter could wipe up the floor with you. Go away, Eddie. Go away. George, you don't know your own strength, but I'm going to show you what a bum you really are. George, how old are you? I'm 53, Mr. Yeah, Daddy's 53, a broken-down old war horse, but he can still beat your brains out. I want you to belt him. Let him know what it feels like to get hit for once in his life. I can't do it, Mr. Wallace. You like him, don't you? Yes, sir, I do. Then you'll be doing him a favor. He thinks he's King Kong. He won't believe the truth. I want you to belt some sense into him. Go away, George. I don't want to hurt you. Belt him, I said. Go away, George. I don't want to hurt you. Watch it, big fella. Now, let him get up by himself. Come on, get up. I'm sorry, kid, but it was the only way to prove it to you. You never killed anybody and you can't fight. You don't punch hard enough to bust an egg. Priest was right. You better go home before you get yourself badly hurt and wind up on skid row like the rest of the boys. Is that right, George? Mr. Willis is right, Toro. Problem is that Toro doesn't do what they tell him to do to try to save himself, to go in for a clinch when things get a bit tough and to dance him around for a few rounds and... 
Uh, he doesn't do that. Instead, he tries to fight Buddy Brennan and gets the living shit beaten out of him. He gets his jaw broken. His eyes are busted up. He takes a hell of a beating during the fight. And then, ultimately, um, Toro wants to retire from fighting because he's taken such a beating. And so Eddie goes to get Toro's money for him from the million-dollar um, box office from the fight and goes to see Benko and his men. And this is the scene where he um, gets a reality check, let's say, from Benko's um, accountant, whose name is Leo, played by Nehemiah Persoff. You also hear a bit of Steiger there playing Nick Benko. How much does he get? Federal state taxes, petty cash and miscellaneous. How much does he get? Exactly $49.07. The gate was over a million. What is this, a gag? We don't keep funny books. We don't want to get in trouble with the government. Send in your own CPA if you can find one single wrong entry in there. I'll quit my job. You've got these figures trained so they jump through hoops, and your lawyers have legal contracts to back up Leo's figures. I don't like talk like that, Eddie. Well, you can't do this to a guy, Nick. You let him get beat to a pulp and then leave him with a hole in his What's the matter with you? You got your share. The man lies in the hospital with a broken jaw, and he took the worst beating I ever saw in my oh, whole no, life. And you want me to go back and tell him that all he gets is a lousy $49.07 for a broken jaw? How much would you take? You better take it slow, Eddie. didn't have five guys in the ring with him. So this is the point at which Eddie's redemption arc starts because he's being corrupted by Nick Benko and his machine. He's encouraged Toro to keep going as a fighter. He's called in dubious favours from friends, including a television um, broadcaster called Art Levitt, played by Harold J. Stone. He's basically sold his soul to the organisation so that he's got a nice nest egg. As... Eddie says he's over 40, he doesn't have any kind of job. He's trying to build a future for himself and his wife, Beth, played by Jan Sterling. But the price at this point becomes too high for him and he's got to find something to do to help this guy. So ultimately, and here's a spoiler, but this is a movie you need to see anyway because it's all in the dialogue and the way the arc plays out and the escalation and the fantastic fight scenes. He takes his profits and gives them to Toro and puts him on a plane back to Argentina so he can go and give the money to his family. His father can get a house for the money that Eddie gives him. And he then goes back and confronts Benko. Needless to say, Benko's not happy. He's sold, without Toro's knowledge, Toro's contract to another fight promoter who's a little bit down the rung a bit, a girl called Jim Weirhouse played by Edward Andrews. And Edward Andrews was a character actor who had a real skill for playing nasty bastards in movies. He really... I've seen him do a a few different films. And in each one where he's playing a dubious character at all, he carries it off brilliantly. He really did have a skill against his physical appearance. He didn't look like a tough guy. But he had a skill to kind of show a real nastiness and a real kind of sickness of the soul in the villains he played in movies. And it's always good to see Edward Andrews in those kind of roles. And ultimately, Eddie swallows his pride, tells his wife, Beth, that she'll have to keep her job for a while because she's, they've separated and they're now back together. But she was working to keep herself going. He says to her that she needs to keep her job for a while and he apologises for it. And he starts writing an expose on the fight game called The Harder They Fall. 
and we fade out on the typed pages that Eddie is starting to write of this expose. Now, this isn't Bogart's best movie, but it is his last movie. And apparently they did need a number of reshoots of some of his scenes because his eyes were watering too much while the filming was going on. And the reason Bogart's eyes were watering too much was he was dying of cancer at the time. And the pain from the cancer brought tears to his eyes. And so he, they had to do some reshoots with him. But looking at it as an acting role, it's a good, solid Humphrey Bogart role. He plays um, a guy who's corrupted by the needs of capitalism, in a sense, and because something beyond his control has taken the path of his life and moved it somewhere else. And he plays that arc really well. There's a toughness to Bogart in this movie that in some ways is of a different quality than the toughness we've seen in Bogart before. Maybe it's the toughness of a man who's trying to do his job in spite of the fact he's dying. Maybe a bit of that comes through in the acting that Humphrey Bogart does in The Heart of They Fall. It's a good ending for an incredibly iconic film career, in my humble opinion. Now, there are any number of other virtues to this film as well. I love Philip Jordan and Bud Schulberg's dialogue for this one. It's sharp and punchy and tough. It's like when there's a conflict between two characters in this thing, it's like people sparring. There's a kind of rhythm and um, uh, an impact that almost feels like boxing when the pe- when people are talking, when there is a conflict, particularly between Benko and Eddie. Steiger and Bogart didn't really get on that well during the making of this film, surprisingly enough. One of the reasons was that Bogart was an old-school um, contract player from Warner Brothers, and he didn't really like the method approach that Steiger took to his work. And to be honest, Steiger's character here is of a type that almost became a personal cliché for the actor. There's a lot of similarities between the way Benko acts in this one and the way his character Stanley Schreiner-Hoff plays in The Big Knife with Jack Palance. Though Hoff is a much more cowardly character than Benko, there's a kind of similarity of approach, that shoutiness and that kind of throwing words as weapons and as punches is quite similar between the two different works and the way the actor plays them. And I think one of the the flaws that Steiger had as an actor was taking himself too seriously. He was a method guy. He had enormous success on the stage and was having success as a character actor in films. But there wasn't that sense of, well, I suppose sense of humour that kind of gives some depth to the certain performances there's, you know, that taking yourself seriously is something that these two characters, Stanley Schreiner-Hoff in The Big Knife and Nick Benko in The How They Fall, have. They don't have um, internal lives that they examine themselves. They aren't reflective. They're, in that sense, and I hate to bring it up one more time, they're a little trumpy. But it's a solid uh, bit of acting, and it's the right kind of acting for the character as it is on the page. Mike Lane, the actor who plays Toro, was in his first acting role 
um, in The Harder They Fall. He went on to do a few things. He did some Peplum movies, Ulysses versus The Son of Hercules. He was with Karloff in Frankenstein, 1970. He played a demon in his last role uh, in a movie called Demon Keeper and uh, did a lot of kind of TV work in the 60s and 70s, but never really um, had a, a large career. He's not bad as, as Tori. He plays the simplicity of the character quite well. He's a man of faith. He's um, not too smart. He's big, and he's a little too trusting, so there's an innocence to him. People have compared Toro Marino, and I said that a bit loud there. I hope I didn't blow the mic. He... They compared Toro Marino to Primo Canera, a boxer from the 1930s, who um, had, in some ways, a similar career arc and who at least threatened to sue the production of The Harder They Fall for besmirching his reputation. But I can't really find any evidence that that went anywhere particular. Now, of course, the theme of the movie is the exploitation of boxers. And in fact, there's a bit of newsreel footage that uh, Harold J. Stone's character shows to Eddie Willis of a punch-drunk boxer who um, Harold Stone's character interviews. And it's actually a real-life boxer who suffered severe brain damage during his boxing career. That guy's name was Joe Greber, who suffered some severe brain damage during one of his... Um, boxing matches and they almost interviewed him and had him tell about his life because Greb had irreparable da- brain damage as his time as a boxer and he was a fighter in other, another way too. He was a proponent of fighter safety. He played himself in the movie and got across his point that there should be better care taken and there should be a place for retired damaged boxers, a home or Um, some kind of care facility set up to help those people after their careers in boxing. And uh, Joe Greb's little cameo in this movie just goes to push home the theme of an industry. And I've got a problem with a lot of contact sports for the very same reason. Their business model, and the people are going to be disagreeing with this, but I don't particularly care. The business model for a lot of contact sports is that young men are chewed up and spat out and mutilated and damaged for the entertainment of others. This is an argument I've had with a number of people online and social media, and sports fans get incredibly defensive about it, but looked at from a distance, which is where I'm coming from, because I'm not a sports fan in any way, it is a horrible industry, and the damage done, particularly the mental damage and uh, the life-shortening that's done by contact sports particularly when it comes to brain damage is something we're only now really kind of gauging the extent of with uh, MRI scans and all sorts of other things though this is something that people were aware of with punch drunk boxes as far back as the 18th century nonetheless because money could be made in getting these guys into a ring and because it was seen as a popular entertainment and a gladiatorial contest, and um, there, were, there were any number of kind of PR and puff pieces and ways of looking at it that made it look like it was a noble sport, when in fact what it is is to usually and um, increasingly poor men, 
bashing each other up for the entertainment of others. And increasingly as well, non-white poor men beating each other up for the entertainment of others and for the chance to escape the cycle of poverty that they had. Uh, Lack of opportunity and lack of equality led a lot of people into trying boxing. I mean, I remember in my own family, and I don't talk about my father much because he was a total bastard, but he was on the fringes of that particular industry trying to be a boxing promoter at some stages in his late teens and early 20s um, with Aboriginal boxers because Aboriginal boxers were very tough in those days. And again, it's somebody who didn't have an ac- have access to the economic advantages other people had. It was a way for them to make money. Unfortunately, Indigenous boxers didn't necessarily make a lot of money in the past. Uh, people like Tony Mundine and Lionel Rose and other people had immense problems in later life directly related to their time as Indigenous boxers. The family in days since then has gone on to produce some very good advocates for Indigenous Australians, including Warren Mundine, with whom I don't always agree politically, but who's um, become a voice for his people in a lot of ways and has negotiated with uh, governments on behalf of Indigenous people. But still, ultimately, when boxing and other contact sports, they're about um, rich people getting poor people to damage each other for entertainment purposes and to help the people running these particular industries make a really large amount of money. And I think the harder they fall was probably one of the first times in cinema where that was explicitly and brutally stated and that maybe got people to start to question boxing as an entertainment and maybe getting a few people, who knows, to see that there needed to be more control over it and ultimately, um, for so many reasons, it's an industry that maybe in our century will die out, though there's no strong evidence of that with MMA coming in and all sorts of variations and Muay Thai and, and other sports coming in to fill the gap that boxing once had and doesn't have to this day. Um, it's, uh, you know, it does a disservice as a race and as a species to have people beating each other up for our entertainment. It's undignified, it's brutal, it's sadistic, it's nasty, and it's greedy. And this movie really does underline that in a heavy way. Not in a didactic way particularly, it's still an entertaining movie, and the fight scenes by Mark Robson are really well filmed and really brutally filmed. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised one tiny bit if this movie wasn't influential on Scorsese's Raging Bull, because I think a lot of the um, the cinematography in The Harder They Fall is very similar to a lot of the black-and-white photography in Raging Bull. Cinematography was by a guy called Bernard Guffey, who'd also done Bonnie and Clyde. did Bonnie and Clyde. He also made From Here to Eternity... In a Lonely Place, he'd already done that with Bogart and Sirocco with Bogart. Uh, let's see, Private Hill 36, he did Ida Lupino's movie Private Hill 36. 
decision at sundown. Let's have a look here. Mr. Sardonicus and Homicidal for um, William Castle. The ambushes and the silences for the Mad Film films had to succeed in business without really trying. Uh, and he also, at the, towards the end of his career, did The Great White Hope with James Earl Jones. So he did another boxing film there. But Bernard Guffey's cinematography is top class. It really does give you a strong and visceral sense of the brutality of boxing. So just to wrap that one up, it's a strong ending for Bogart's career. I really like the way he plays um, Eddie in this movie and the fact that he's not a man at his peak. He's a man who's had a, a setback and who has to look for another path. And the fact that Bogart made the film while he was in a hell of a lot of pain from the lung cancer that ultimately took his life about a year later is tragic. Um, Bogart was only 57 when he died. He could have gone on for a career for another 20 years. We could have seen him working with Martin Scorsese. We could have seen him working with Spielberg. We could have seen him working with any number of people. If, If it wasn't for the smoking and the lung cancer, he could have lived in that kind of American Renaissance period. He could have even lived long enough to say be Noah Cross in Chinatown. Bogart is Noah Cross. Think about that. But unfortunately, um, smoking got him and the lung cancer got him. So, yeah, um, it was the end of his career. But it's not a shameful one by any means. It's a strong film. Bogart does it well. And it's a movie that we really should go back and revisit now and then. So anyway, I'm going to take a break now. I want to get back. It's time for some westerns with How the West Was Won, an enormous, well over two and a half hour film, filmed in Cinerama, which has got some um, pluses and minuses on rewatching it these days, and with a really large ensemble cast. was one metro goldwyn mayor and cinerama have brought together the biggest and most distinguished all-star cast in entertainment history characterizing the men and women who conquered the wilderness finding a new life in this immense human saga of the american west james stewart is the mountain man henry fonda is the plainsman adventurers such as these first explored the land then came the settlers who traveled the waterways like the prescott family carl malden and agnes moorhead and their daughters, Carol Baker and Debbie Reynolds, who left the frontier for a gayer life. There were the good and the bad. River pirates like Walter Brennan. Notorious desperados like Charlie Gant, portrayed by Eli Wallach. And Lee J. Cobb as the dauntless U.S. Marshal who tracked him down. There were the gamblers and the entertainers. Gregory Peck is Cleve Van Valen, lucky in cards and in love. There was Robert Preston as the wagon master who loved in vain. And Thelma Ritter, a friend in need. Here, too, were the North, Andy Devine. And the South, Russ Tamblin. And the famous of history, John Wayne as General William Tecumseh Sherman. Henry Morgan as General Ulysses S. Grant. And Raymond Massey as Abraham Lincoln. George Pappard is Zeb Rawlings, who brought the law to the West. And Carolyn Jones portrays Julie Rawlings, whose courage matched that of her fighting husband. And there were the men who brought the railroad, 
like Mike King, portrayed by Richard Widmark. West was one startles your eyes with a huge and colorful panorama of the glorious frontier, with all its reckless adventure and its awesome violence. With its spirited romance, its lusty Old West fun, and its breathtaking action spectacle, the most fabulous film ever conceived from any standpoint. How the West Was One is a big film in every possible way. It runs long. It's 164 minutes long, in fact. It's full of stars. It's It was an expensive film to make. It has three directors. It covers about 50 years of American history, mostly following on with several uh, members of a family. And most of all, it was filmed in Cinerama. And Cinerama, the Cinerama process was a three-strip technicolor process designed for a curved Cinerama screen. In case you don't remember from the trailer I just played, here is the cast. James Stewart, Carol Baker, Debbie Reynolds, Carl Malden, Agnes Moorhead, Walter Brennan, Bridget Baslin, Lee Van Cleef turns up in there, Gregory Peck, Robert Preston, Thelma Ritter, John Larch, David Bryan, George Peppard, Andy Devine, Harry Morgan, John Wayne, Russ Tamblin, Raymond Massey, Henry Fonda, Richard Widmark, Carolyn Jones, Lee J. Cobb, Eli Wallach, Harry Dean Stanton, Mickey Shaughnessy, and also Joe Sawyer. So the, basically there's dozens and dozens of actors in this thing, and it is enormous. Now, I'll talk about Cinerama first because... The Cinerama process causes some problems watching this film. And I'll tell you why I've got three copies of it. First off, the Cinerama process. Basically, the, it was filmed with three cameras off at slight angles to each other so that they could project it onto a screen using three um, Technicolor cameras to give an incredibly wide screen, but a curved screen. So basically, it's almost a semi-wraparound movie screen, which... Um, gave an unprecedented movie experience. Of course, this came out in the late 1950s and into the early 1960s when this film was made. Only the second of two narrative movies made in the Cinerama process. There were a couple of others, but they kind of fudged the process and changed it significantly from Cinerama to get the same effect. This was the original Cinerama, known as three-strip Cinerama. Though there were some sequences... They weren't filmed in three-strip Cinerama, but in Ultra Panavision 70. Uh, the only other film made in three-strip Cinerama as a narrative film was The Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm in 1962 as well. Now, one of the things you might kind of notice when you see this film is that because it was designed for a curved screen, and we're watching it on flat-screen TVs, 
characters on either side of the screen, when they're talking to each other, their eye lines don't match up. They're kind of looking off to one side of the other person. This is because of how, unless you're very wealthy and have one of those new curved TV screens, the sight lines of the actors look a bit off. And close-ups were difficult to do in Cinerama as well because the camera was you know, this enormous thing 18 inches away from the actors' faces. And so it really didn't work out well. It was a, a distracting and difficult thing for actors to work in close-up. So everything shot in medium or long shots in How the West Was Won. And because of the length of the film as well, it has a conceit that also appeared in a fairly recent film, The Hateful Eight. One of the things that Tarantino did, apart from filming the movie in Ultra Panavision 70 and a process which hadn't been used for donkey's years, let's see, it hadn't been used since 1966 when Charlton Heston starred in Khartoum. And then suddenly in 2015, Tarantino used it again. Apart from that, the other commonality that How the West One has with Tarantino's A Hateful Eight is it starts out with an overture at the start with a, just a kind of static screen while the music for the movie plays. And then about five minutes in, the movie itself starts. The other thing is that it has an intermission as well, which is another thing movies do now because it's all about churning people through. You make the movie two, two and a half hours long. You get their asses in the seat, you get their asses out of the seat, you sell the next bunch of people popcorn. The other way in which this movie is enormous is that it had three directors, not just one, but three, and they weren't shoddy little directors either. John Ford, Henry Hathaway, and George Marshall. Now, we know John Ford for his westerns. Um, Henry Hathaway did a number of good films. He did The Black Rose with Tyrone Power, uh, Niagara with um, Marilyn Monroe, did Prince Valiant, oddly enough, The Legend of the Lost, North to Alaska, The Sons of Katie Elder, Nevada Smith, Five Card Stud. So he was very much known for Westerns. He also did Kiss of Death with Widmark and Victor Mature in 1947. And then you get George Marshall, who made a whole bunch of films. Uh, he did things like Houdini in 1953 with Tony Curtis. Uh, Beyond Mombasa, I've got to see that, I don't know what it's about. The Sheep Man, a good movie with Glenn Ford in it, which was a nice little western. Uh, let's see what else we've got here. The Blue Dahlia in 1946, My Friend Irma, which is a fine film. I've seen that a couple of years ago, I'm going to have to revisit that one. Destry Rides Again in 1939. So all of these guys were kind of ageing filmmakers who were really experienced at making westerns. And in order to... Um, incorporate the three people directing the movie is actually divided up into five sections there's a great narration with spencer tracy who that links together the different sections uh tracy was supposed to do a role in the film but he was quite ill at the time and died only a few years later but his narration kind of holds it together and and spencer Tracy, even though there's the kind of writing of the narration is very bombastic and over the top the way Tracy puts it across is really good, in the same way that his voiceovers in uh, The Old Man and the Sea really hold it together. The first section set in 1839, and it's called The Rivers. Um, a mountain man called Linus Rawlings, played by Jimmy Stewart, playing a character about 20 years younger than he is, making his way by horse by, um, through the waterways, through the mountains. He confers with a group of Indians, 
and meets up with the Prescott family, uh, Carl Malden plays Zebulon Prescott, the patriarch of the family. His wife's played by Agnes Moorhead. They have two daughters, Eve, played by Carol Baker, and um, Lilith, played by Debbie Reynolds. The Prescott family are heading west to make their fortune and to settle a farm. They've got some money, and they build um, a raft to travel down the river to get to where they need to get to. Meanwhile, um, Linus Rawlings has a certain um, rapport with Eve, played by Carol Baker, who's much, much too young to play a love interest for Jimmy Stewart, who was 56 at the time, and Carol Baker was um, 31. So there was a, a significant age difference there. But anyway, I'll leave that alone. Uh, the Rivers is an interesting one because there are a bunch of river pirates who attack not only uh, Rawlings, but also the Prescott family in two separate incidents. And they're headed by Walter Brennan as a patriarch of that family. And Lee Van Cleef is one of the sons. And there's quite an exciting sequence there. First off, when um, Rawlins meets the river pirates who are masquerading as river traders, they've set up camp on the side of a river in a cave on the bluffs above the river. And basically anybody comes past to trade, they rob them and kill them. Uh, he escapes being killed by the skin of his teeth and floats down the river just as the Prescotts encounter the river pirates led by Jeb Hawkins, played by Walter Brennan. Uh, and there's a fight. They get away from it. The family travels down the river. Uh, the Linus kind of goes away telling Eve that he's a rambling man and he's sinful and he doesn't want to... Um, kind of ruin her life by getting married to her and as they go down the river on the raft uh, there are some rapids and the parents die and so the two daughters Lilith and um, Eve are left to bury their family and to try to make their way west. Lilith Rawlings comes back he marries Eve Meanwhile, Lilith goes back east and becomes a dancehall girl. That section, that section of the movie is directed by Henry Hathaway, and it's quite good. There's adventure, there's romance, there's um, some quite stilted dialogue in some places, but you get a lot of fun from Carl Malden playing the patriarch, and even though she doesn't get a hell of a lot of dialogue, Agnes Moorhead is solid playing um, the matriarch of the family who is tolerant of the, um, let's say, tall tales that her husband's inclined to tell. And her husband, um, Zebulon, has a certain rapport with Linus because Linus, the Jimmy Stewart character, also has been known to exaggerate the truth. The um, River Rapid sequence is quite well directed and quite suspenseful as well. Each one of these scenes, different sections of the movie, has a kind of set-piece action scene. There are actually a couple of them in each one. And they're made really well. In fact, one of the stuntmen in um, a railroad chase in the last sequence of the film was quite seriously injured and almost died because some logs that were on a flatbed rail car broke loose and uh, he was quite crushed by them. But I'm getting ahead of myself there. So we get to the second section, which is also directed by Henry Hathaway, which is called The Plains. This section said in 1851, um, Eve's sister, sister Lilith, played by Debbie Reynolds, chooses to go back east, 
but after some years finds herself touring with a show in St. Louis, where she meets up with a professional gambler, Cleve Van Valen, who overhears that she's inherited a California gold mine from a distant relative. Uh, Cleve then joins a wagon train taking um, Lilith to California. There's a wagon master played by Robert Preston, who courts her along the way with no success at all because he's incredibly inept at it. Uh, And she's travelling in a wagon with another woman who's looking for a husband, a woman called Aggie Clegg, Agatha Clegg, played by Thelma Ritter, who's looking for a husband. And uh, Thelma Ritter has, even though the characters play for comic relief, she's also builds up a really nice, strong friendship with Lilith. And that kind of um, friendship between the two plays really nicely. It really does kind of work, even though Aggie is looking for a husband and and she's a middle-aged woman, so that's a little more problematic than it might be otherwise. They um, get on well. There's an attack by the Cheyennes on the wagon train, which is quite dramatic. Um, The Cheyennes, uh, the Cheyenne are um, worried that all these settlers are impinging on their land, so they arrange to steal horses and cattle and and get away. There's people falling off wagons. There's a really interesting point of view scene from the inside of a wagon tumbling off a cliff, which is kind of um, cool. It, It doesn't play as well as it might have had they had modern special effects to do it with, but it kind of works well enough. And there's a lot of really good stunt work with people jumping on the front of wagons to let the front lot of horses loose so that the Indians may grab them rather than grabbing the wagons. Uh, There's people falling off wagons. The stunt work in this is really top-notch for the time. But anyway, um, eventually they reach California and uh, they find out that the gold mine that Lilith has inherited is worthless. Cleve leaves her. And Lilith goes to work in a dance hall in uh, camp towns. And um, she works her way back east on a riverboat. Eventually, Cleve meets up with her again and they link up. And even Aggie gets a nice little kind of cameo at the end of that sequence, uh, showing that her life has kind of turned in a nice direction too. They then uh, decide they're going to go to um, Cleve and... Lilith decide they're going to go to California and set up some kind of transport business in San Francisco, which they do. And that sequence kind of ends. We then cut to the third sequence of the film, which is the Civil War between 1861 and 1865. Linus Rawlins, who's not on screen in this section of it, this is the the section directed by John Ford. And for me, it's kind of the weaker section of them, even though it is directed by John Ford. Um, Linus has gone off to fight in the Union Army in the Civil War. Eve has a son by this stage called Zeb, named after her father, played by George Papard. And George Papard does a nice bit of acting in this movie. In fact, it's one of his best roles as an actor. Uh, he had obviously had his problems with alcohol and other um, personality problems, let's say. But in this one, he's really good. He plays it from a young man to a late middle-aged man during the rest of the film, and he kind of holds it together really nicely. Um, Zeb, who's a kind of green country farm boy, enlists and um, goes to, and ends up fighting in the Battle of Shiloh. He um, then 
has an encounter tangentially with Generals Ulysses S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman, played by Harry Morgan and John Wayne. Uh, there's some scenes of the carnage of the Battle of Shiloh, which is quite intense. And even though we do get that, it's the shortest sequence in the movie and it's possibly the weakest. There is um, a bit of uh, the Battle of Shiloh and bits of the Civil War in there, but it's not the best work that John Ford did. The war ends, Zeb returns home as a lieutenant and finds out that his mother's died, so um, Eva's died. Uh, he gives his far farm to his brother and then moves, uh, decides to become a career soldier. So we then move on to Zeb's life in the 1868 section of the movie called The Railroad, which has some of the nicest sequences in the whole movie. This is a section directed by George Marshall. Zeb's working for the army and uh, trying, kind of liaising with the construction of the railroad. The railroad is um, being built by uh, the character played by... Richard Widmark, Mike King, who violates uh, treaties with the Indians on in Indian Territory and the Arapahoes retaliate. Um, he's one of those kind of capitalist guys who's all about progress and doesn't and wants to take shortcuts and get things done, even though he's breaking agreements with other parties in there. Uh, this is one of those kind of hard, kind of granite-jawed Richard Widmark roles then he makes the most of it. I mean, I've never seen Richard Widmark be bad in a movie. And in this one, he's quite strong there. And this is about Zeb becoming disillusioned with progress in some ways. And he is trying to negotiate between the Indians and the railways, which doesn't work. And the Arapaho Indians stampede a herd of buffalo all the way through the um the construction camp for the railway in a sequence that's really powerful. It really works fantastically well. The um, This is where Cinerama comes into its own and the widescreen format gives us a, a buffalo stampede through um, a populated camp encampment, which it, it still works really well in the 21st century. It's um, probably one of the two sequences in this film that I really liked a lot. Uh, it was gritty, it was tough, it was uncompromising, and it ends with a child running around the camp looking for its mother, which kind of gives a human face to the carnage, which is caused by Mike King's willingness to break treaties and to take shortcuts through Indian land in order to fulfil... De you know, manifest destiny in a sense and that kind of works well and uh, Papad's really good in that particular sequence then we move on to the last sequence of the film which again is directed by Henry Hathaway which is The Outlaws um, Lilith has been widowed, Cleves died they made and lost several fortunes she travels to Arizona uh, at the, and invites Zeb and his family to oversee her ranch, the last thing she owns is a ranch and Zeb's now a marshal and he's middle-aged. His wife, Julie, played by Carolyn Jones, who was Morticia Adams, of course, in The Adams Family a few years later. And their children uh, meet up in uh, Arizona and uh, getting off the same train as Lilith is an outlaw, an old enemy of Zeb's, called Charlie Gant, played by Eli Wallach, 
who plays a very broad and really doesn't bring his A game to the piece, but he doesn't really need to in this one. Uh, Zeb gets the assistance of the marshal of the town, a guy called Lou Ramsey, played by Lee J. Cobb. And they decide that what Gant's going to do is rob a train of some gold. And so um, Ramsey and Zeb decide that what they're going to do is get on the train and arrange to ambush Gant and his gang, among whom is Harry Dean Stanton. You don't get much of Harry Dean Stanton there, but he's in there. And they have um, a great pitched battle on this train, which is really exciting. And there's a lot of physical effects in this one. The stunt work of the trainer, the guys mounting the train with their horses is fantastic. The um, There are uh, scenes where carriages break loose and um, the and great tree trunks of lumber that are on the flatbeds break loose. Uh, they actually do crash a train off the tracks in this section of the movie uh, in a spectacular way. It's beautiful stunt work. The escalation of the action is nice. It's a piece of action cinema that does give us full value. Um, there's not a lot of green screen stuff. Most of it's done on location. So we do see Eli Wallach and George Papad and all the actors running around the tops of trains. And it kind of, um, yeah, it ends the movie on a really interesting action note and caps off all of these fantastic action sequences that are in this film. Um, eventually, of course, Zeb wins and he and his family move on to the farm with Lilith and then the movie kind of ends with a epilogue shot in um, Los Angeles and around San Francisco and the San Fernando Valley in the 1960s showing the way progress has continued with four-lane freeways and the Golden Gate Bridge and it kind of ends on a note of, yes, we have conquered the West and civilization continues. And that's one of the problems I have with this film. Basically, even though it's a great film and there's some good acting in there, there's some fantastic action sequences, it does tell a story of the history of a place and what happens, it doesn't, and more than any other 1960s movie would, whitewash the crimes that were committed in the name of progress but ultimately when you look at it externally the movie's about the colonization and invasion of a nation by white people and seen from that point of view it makes it kind of interesting but also makes it kind of sad too yeah there's a lot of suffering that goes on from the people who are trying to find a better life and you understand that and you accept that, and there are some very likable characters in this movie, but ultimately it's a story of invasion. And we've kind of got to acknowledge that even while we like the movie. Now, I did promise you I'd tell you why I've got three copies of this. First copy I got from my good friend Trev, who gave me a box of DVDs about a month ago. And so I put it on, and for some reason, the codec that... This is like a 10 or 15-year-old DVD. The codec used doesn't work with my widescreen TV. And so it ended up trying to put the widescreen Cinerama screen into um, a 6x5 aspect ratio or something like that. So I wasn't happy with that. So I went, fuck it, I'm going to download a torrent. So I downloaded a torrent, and that's the one I actually watched. It does the Cinerama really well. It's the torrent of the cut of the movie, 
that links up the three Cinerama screens using computer enhancement and makes it really well. And then today, because today is my 12th wedding anniversary to dear Sally, she gave me a JB Hi-Fi card so I could go and buy some DVDs as an anniversary present. And among the DVDs that were going for for $20 was an extended version of How the West Was Won with a disc full of extras. And so I went, yes, I will have that. So ultimately I've got a dodgy old DVD copy of this film. I've got the illegal copy I downloaded as um, a file. And I've also got the two-disc version that um, I happened on totally by accident while I was shopping today. So that's how I ended up with three copies of this movie. And to be honest with you, I'm going to watch the extras on the second disc of the third copy of the movie that I've got because I do want to see if there's anything more about the making of this film. It was an enormous enterprise and a fantastically large project for the people to make this movie. Um, It cost a lot of money to make at the time. Just give me a moment. I'm going to scroll up on my screen, see what the budget was. Budget was um, $14,483,000 in 1962. Ended up making in the box office $50 million. So they got three times the money back at least. And, of course, they went for name actors rather than necessarily the best actors for the roles. I think that if they had have not gone with some of the obvious choices like Gregory Peck and James Stewart, maybe, and um, Henry Fonda turns up in a role that's kind of appropriate as a buffalo hunter um, backwoodsman. And he's kind of fun in there. He turns up um, in the section starring, the first section starring George Papad, the, and he does a nice job of it. So I think we could keep him. But I'm sure that having John Wayne in for almost a cameo as William Tecumseh Sherman and having Harry Morgan as Ulysses S. Grant, Harry Morgan maybe, but John Wayne doesn't do much with the role he's given. I suppose that's an exercise for people who want to play with the, um, the movies is working out movies like this and a number of other films, of course and working out who you would recast, were you to recast this film, just to kind of get a little more out of the story and get a little more out of some of the characters. Um, I think that having people like Thelma Ritter in there and Agnes Moorhead really works, and I think Carol Baker was a vastly underestimated actor. Debbie Reynolds less so. I think that um, she, because there are a couple of dance sequences with her in it, so she gets to sing and dance and do the kind of stuff she did best. But I'm not sure as a dramatic actor she really had what it took at that stage of her career to put across um, Lilith's character. Uh, well, I mean, having character actors in there as in supporting cast, think people like Walter Brennan, Robert Preston, kind of yes, maybe no. We get a little cameo from Andy Devine playing a guy who's um, hooked up with the militia. Um, Russ Tamblin turns up as a Confederate soldier. Uh, Lee J. Cobb kind of makes his way through it pretty well. Carolyn Jones isn't given enough to do. Some of the female roles, with a couple of exceptions, are a bit thinly written. And I would have liked to have seen more of particular characters like um, Carolyn Jones' character, Julie Rawlins, Zeb's wife. She plays it strong. She plays it as a kind of tough frontier woman. But there really isn't a lot for her to hang on to. And I think that's a missed opportunity. Yes, it was a different time and that kind of stuff wasn't seen as a priority. But I really would have liked to have seen more of certain people like her. And, of course, Thelma Ritter playing Aggie Clegg, 
who steals every scene she's in but does it in such a lovely way that it doesn't unbalance the narrative. But just to kind of wind it up on that one, and this podcast has run longer than a lot of them have before, which is probably apt when I'm talking about this movie. Um, I like it. I, I kind of like it. I'm aware of the fact that it is uh, a story of invasion, ultimately. I don't go with the r- bit of the rah-rah rhetoric that comes into the film, but I think that it's a film of quality. It gets 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is kind of rare for a film at this age. And it's also been preserved by... Um, it's been deemed as an important film by what, who is it, uh, by the National Film Registry of the Library of Congress. And I can understand why too, because there, was, there hasn't been a film like this in a lot of ways that tells a long story and tells a story of um, the colonisation of the West in quite the same way and on quite the same scale. There are a couple of movies that kind of tried to tell these big scale stories at the time. Uh, the other one being, of course, The Longest Day, which was telling you about the D-Day invasion. But uh, these movies ultimately became too expensive to make on the scale that they made them. But there was that moment in cinema history when a film this enormous could be made and become successful financially. And, um, yeah, in that sense, it's very much a paleo cinema thing. And it's also um, a historical document of a type. In some ways, they kind of do address the changing relationship with the indigenous population as well. Sort of parallels the change in the way Western cinema and cinema, you know, Westerns in cinema addressed um, the disenfranchisement of indigenous populations. So, in a sense, it kind of parallels the history of. Western films over the 15 years prior to the making of this movie where they were starting to have more complex narratives about indigenous populations and it wasn't just you know, good people versus savage Indians kind of thing. They, they kind of started getting a bit more nuance and a bit more truth in it. Uh, it wasn't until many, many years later and still we're not getting to the whole truth about this kind of thing. But you can start to see that progress in treating indigenous populations as human beings that westerns just started to do maybe 10 years before this film came out but anyway that's about it this time around i've got the job done uh, it's time to knock 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 that naughty clock that says it's time to go thank you for listening thank you again to the patreon supporters who help out with the podcast and keep things pumping along thank you to dear david Cummer, who still isn't on the credits because i'm a slack bastard and thank you to everybody else. Um, I do have some feedback, which I received by email, which I'm going to put into the next Martian Drive-In podcast because it's a better fit for um, MDIP. But anyway, take care of yourselves. Watch some good movies. Watch some bad movies. Watch some movies you haven't seen before and get outside your comfort zone. I'll be back next week with a Martian Drive-In podcast and two weeks with a Paleo Cinema podcast. And I'm going to put a bit of music at the end of the podcast so you listen to the credits. Kind of like Marvel does with the little teasers at the end of the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. But anyway, here are the credits. And after that, I'm putting some music. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Driving Podcast done in the style of film credits. I'd like to thank Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the technicolor consultant, Claire the script doctor Gary the prop master Morris our musical director 
Jan, our dialect coach. Armin, our key grip. Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler. Elaine, our scientific advisor. Julia, the casting director. Chris, the camera operator. Christopher, the gaffer. Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress. Tansy, our foley artist. Alyssa, our location scout. Mark, the second unit director. Paul, the special makeup effects director. Tammy, the donut wrangler. Tim, our New York unit director. Steve, our spiritual advisor. Steve Sullivan, our script doctor. Dylan, the goat wrangler. Eric, the set security lead. Richard H., the set photographer. Mark D., the extra. David L., the extra. And Richard C., our transport co-captain. Plus Andrew, our necessary film critic. We have Kerry H., our accountant. And Kerry L., our other spiritual advisor. Thank you so much to all the patrons for dipping into their pockets and helping out with the podcast. This has been a Paleo Cinema Martian Drive-In production. The end. Break the ice dancing this way is paradise. But why delay the friendliest thing two people can do? If you are free, no strings attached, and you're like me, no wings attached. Then it can be the friendliest thing two people can do. Some fellas take and boast of it. Some ladies make the most of it. Why do they fake the friendliest thing two? People can do when it can be the sweetest and let's face it the completest and friendliest thing two people can do flying the blue Atlantic one blanket for two romantic you sleep or pursue the friendliest thing two people can do love in the sky it's kinky at dawn as you spy Helsinki and end with a sigh the friendliest thing two people can do then after Rome or Rio you pack to go home adio and over the foam you're glad that you're not the captain or crew for it's the sea
friendliest thing to people. 